You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Before we even start, a warning for the listener. This episode is about a sex scandal. And as you know, we don't censor the details. So if you normally listen to this in a public place or you have children in the car, you might want to pause this one for a moment when you can listen with headphones and you won't be interrupted. Winky face emoji. LOL. <laughs> uh, hilarious. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. George Taylor was probably not thrilled about the prospect of taking the stand as a witness against the colonial administrators of Ireland. He was subpoenaed to give testimony against Gustavus Cornwall, who was in charge of the General Post Office in Dublin, and James Ellis French, who was in charge of the Royal Irish Constabulary Dublin Fusiliers. If the prosecution somehow lost the case, he might not have to worry about what Cornwall might do to him. Maybe, you know, hold his mail or whatever. But French had friends with batons, friends with rifles, who had no qualms about arresting, beating up, or even killing Irish savages. We don't have much in the way of records describing the courtroom scene, but if the libel trial involving the same defendants in the months before can be a measure, the courtroom was likely packed, rowdy, and every eye in the room would have been fixed on young Taylor as the prosecutor opened up the line of questioning. Maybe he was not afraid nor embarrassed about admitting to his role in the illegal deeds on trial. Or maybe he was flushed with shame and anger and fear, sweating in the hot August courtroom. In the course of his testimony, he described an evening with Gustavus Cornwall. Cornwall unbuttoned my trousers and I unbuttoned his, Taylor told the courtroom. I expect there was probably some rumbles from the audience at that, but he went on. Cornwall said to me, come over here on the bed. While we were both on the bed, there was mutual masturbation. We remained on the bed about three quarters of an hour. He kissed me several times. The prosecution asked him if they went beyond masturbation, beyond kissing. He replied that there was no attempt at sodomy, nor was sodomy committed then. The barrister pushed Taylor, asking him if he even knew what sodomy was, and Taylor replied tartly, I know the meaning of sodomy. I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Elizabeth Garner Masaryk. And we both know the meaning of sodomy. <laughs> and we're your historians for this episode of Dig. <laughs> George Taylor was one of 22 witnesses in the sodomy trials of Gustavus Cornwall, James Ellis French, and five others. 
This was no ordinary trial either. Like most crimes, sodomy was usually a case of men caught in the act by patrolling policemen or was otherwise uncovered by normal police work. The discovery of this particular government sex scandal, however, was the work not of the police, but of journalists. 19th century Anglo-Irish relations were fraught, to say the least. By force, Ireland was folded in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland in 1801. Few Irish citizens wanted this, and fewer had any say in the Act of Union. From its very inception, there were loud objections. In the early part of the century, Daniel O'Connell was the voice of the nationalist movement, fighting for Catholic emancipation with monster meetings of thousands who'd gather in rural Ireland to hear him speak and to rally behind his causes. The mobilization of a very dissatisfied population spoke volumes to the lawmakers in London, and emancipation was achieved by the 1830s. By the end of the century, though, the political arm of Irish nationalism was led by Charles Stuart Parnell, maybe the only man in Ireland who was both respected by the British and loved by the Irish. Mostly because the British effectively did not respect Irishmen as a rule, but still, he was a powerful figure. For a while in the 1870s, Parnell led a minority of the Irish Home Rule Party in obstructionist tactics to demand the British government work on land reform for Ireland. He'd convey his humiliations of the British through coverage of these tactics in newspapers. While there were plenty of nationalist sympathizing newspapers in Ireland, particularly the Freeman's Journal and the Cork Examiner, none were quite as dedicated to the Home Rule cause as Parnell wanted. So with his fellow MP, William O'Brien, and friend, Tim Healy, he launched United Ireland, a mouthpiece for Parnell to revitalize the nationalist cause and reach all of Ireland. Where the monster meeting had worked wonders in the earlier part of the century, journalism took the fore in this new age of the home rule movement. There's also other stuff that Parnell was involved in or linked to. The National Land League, the Land Wars and Agrarian Violence, the Phoenix Park murder of the newly appointed Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, which he wasn't actually uh, associated with, but the, or he wasn't actually involved in those murders, but um, the London Times made that connection, um, you know, erroneously. But for our purposes today, we're going to actually focus on just this journalism aspect, because that's where French Cornwall and poor George Taylor come back into the story. Ultimately, journalism proved one of the most effective ways to garner national support and challenge British rule, not in terms of actual administration or even the atrocities the British committed against the Irish on the regular, but instead on moral grounds. In the British press, the Irish were depicted as savages, children, animals, the kinds of things that you wouldn't even consider giving autonomous rule to. This was established as fact through centuries of media and literary representations. And we'll uh, include a link to Michael Denis' book, um, The Eternal Patty, in the show notes. So when an Irish man actually did something horrible, like the Phoenix Park murders, it was the only thing British newspapers could talk about for weeks, even months, as a confirmation of all the things the British assumed about the Irish. Sidebar. 
just days, literally just two days before the radical nationalists known as the Invincibles murdered Lord Frederick Cavendish and Thomas Henry Burke in the Dublin Park, the Royal Irish Constabulary had opened fire on a group of teenage boys in the Ballina who'd taken to the streets to celebrate Charles Stewart's Parnell's release from prison. Several children were killed. But this act of British violence against unarmed Irish children was swept away by the tide of newspaper outrage at the political assassination of the Lord Lieutenant, an Englishman killed by Irish rebels. It was as if British violence against Irish people was normal, everyday, expected, deserved. Even the Irish papers let their disgust with the Irish rebels overshadow the Ballina Massacre. Violence, evidently, was not the sort of moral failing that would hold up in an attack on the British fitness to rule Ireland. It had to be sex. Dublin is a small town. In the 1880s, it was even smaller. Like most small towns, everyone knew everyone else's business. Is Dublin still a small town? It's pretty small. Really? It's, I mean, it's like it's like Buffalo. Oh, okay. You, you like know people. You know Buffalo, but when you get there, it's small. And like everybody's yeah. related to everybody. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so at some point in 1883, frustrated with the lack of movement on the land reform promises from the Gladstonian government, the United Ireland newspaper leadership decided to hit below the belt for a change. Rumor had it that the secretary of the GPO was using the post office on Sackville Street to gain access to sexually available young men. Oh, my God. And for those who've been to Dublin, so Sackville Street is what O'Connell Street used to be called before um, Irish independence. And the GPO, again, just stands for General Post Office. That's what how we shorted it in oh, the field. It's okay. the lingo. Because General Post Office is so boring and long. Um, so this is actually pretty common for the British Postal Service, a sex scandal, um, in an uncomfortably sort of hilarious way. Uh, Katie Highmarch Watson has a really great article on a sex scandal in London just a few years after this period that we're talking about. We're talking about like 1883 to 1885 or so. Um, her, hers, I think, is 1895, she, it covers, um, which revolves around teen boys who worked for the General Post Office there. Um, in London, effectively, um, telegram running uh, and message delivery was not quite as lucrative uh, as telegram run running plus selling sex on the side. Mm. So re-enter Gustavus Cornwall, secretary of the General Post Office, or the GPO, as we were just so... Old. <laughs> By 19th century standards, Gustavus Cornwall was probably dashing. He wore his wavy blonde hair with a side part and grew some impressive mutton chops to hide what we suspect is a weak jawline. He looks a little mm, like Gene Wilder with facial hair. Maybe a Blazing Saddles Gene Wilder rather than a Willy Wonka Gene Wilder. <laughs> you know what? Today he's 85 years old. Aww. Just today. So it's wow. interesting you bring him up. Anyway, um, or he would have been. He was a man of influence. Um, Cornwall, not Gene Wilder. Well, both. Both. Yeah, yeah. He would have been in charge of all communications in Ireland, including messages and orders arriving from Britain for the administration of Ireland. 
So I doubt it took actually much effort for Tim Healy and Blame O'Brien to sort of discover Cornwall's dating service, which is effectively what it was, um, pimp service, same thing, at the GPO. Uh, upper crust Dublin man, Dublin was quite entangled socially. It, again, it's a small town, so everybody yeah. knows everybody in, in certain circles. And queer men of those circles mingled with the conventional at house parties, at the theater, and various other, other sort of genteel spaces. It's likely that they knew personally about Cornwall, perhaps even about French, just from encountering uh, them with their dates around town. But for the sake of a little fun speculation, let's say they were clueless and only happened upon the information from one of their regular paper post office boy informants. Um, A few pence would most certainly buy information from one of the hundreds of teen boys who ran messages all over the city or haunted street corners hawking their papers. Those boys were well-connected and very much in the know, and not a few of them made that sexual side hustle work for them. Healy and O'Brien had a bone to pick with James Ellis French in particular because the United Ireland was a Parnell mouthpiece poking fun at the British government at every conceivable turn. It was also a target of police harassment. French's beat cops harassed the paperboys selling the United Ireland on the streets and made life difficult for its writers. They even dismantled the printing presses a time or two. So running some suggestive stories and cartoons that indicated Cornwall and French might be boinking dudes was probably a pretty tantalizing opportunity. In addition to feeling pretty sour towards French, Healy and O'Brien also had their uh, directive from Parnell. Challenge the British government, chip away at their governance in whatever way you can, and remind the Irish people that it's the home rule movement that is fighting for them and against British corruption. So there were overtly political motivations to poke the Dublin Castle administration, or what we call the British colonial government in Ireland, and its cronies. The first historian to really discuss the Dublin Castle scandal in particular, this story that we're telling today, is H.G. Cox. Um, That is Harry Cox. He is a historian. Uh, So Cox sees this attack on French and Cornwall as Irish Catholic homophobia. Other scholars, myself included, disagree. Um, While it's true that Irish Catholic nationalism in the free state after 1922 was very homophobic, uh, the motivations for this this investigation, this particular one in 1883 to 84, were effectively to find dirty laundry of any kind, you know, homosexual or premarital or whatever. Um, So William O'Brien also tossed around the fact that a British member of Parliament, George Bolton, had lived with his wife for several years before they were married. (gasps) Quite the scandal. (laughs) Indeed. So in a sort of poetic justice, Mr. Parnell himself would ultimately fall from political grace for a sex scandal. Parnell lived with a married woman, Mrs. Kitty O'Shea. Dang, that's a... Mrs. Kitty O'Shea. Kitty O'Shea. Awesome. Hey, girl. And when he tried to appoint Mrs. O'Shea, estranged husband, to a position within the Home Rule Party, Tim Healy turned on Parnell and blew the O'Shea-Parnell-O'Shea affair completely wide open. Colonel O'Shea then had to sue for divorce, citing Kitty's infidelities, and the scandal shocked Parnell's voter base and discredited him among the British parliamentarians. He died just a few years after being kicked off the team. 
So it sounds like Colonel O'Shea was actually okay with this whole situation. Like him and his wife were probably oh, yeah. split up. Oh yeah, he did up. not give. He didn't yeah, care. so they were split yeah. up already. They yeah. just hadn't officially divorced. Yeah. I guess. Okay. I think Parnell and Parnell and O'Shea, uh, Kitty, they had like at least one kid, maybe a couple. Hmm. It was very strange. Hmm. Um, fascinating stuff. Uh, so it was a sex scandal that O'Brien and Healy sought and a queer sex scandal involving not one, but two of the top Dublin castle administrators was just too juicy to pass up. There is a story about Tim Healy that Margot Backus tells in her book, Scandal Work, that she thinks absolves him entirely of homophobia. And maybe it does. And she actually pulled this anecdote from a bio on Tim Healy. But I couldn't get a copy of that in time to write this episode, so I'm quoting from Bacchus instead. Quote, Healy, in fact, was sufficiently comfortable with male sexual variability that while once walking home from the House of Commons with radical member of Parliament Henry Labouchere, the sponsor of the Criminal Law Amendment of 1885, Section 11, which made any sex between men illegal... Um, and that destroyed Oscar Wilde, he had responded to Labouchere's observation that most of the men in a given circle were musical, aka homosexual, by saying that those who have no music in their souls are fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. Mm. So if that story is true, and Healy himself wasn't explicitly against same-sex desiring men, he still used the system of sexual oppression as a revenge opportunity to effectively ruin the lives of these two guys for having sex with other men. Right. So not exactly a nice thing to do, but ultimately really effective in some ways. Because, as we will discuss, James Ellis French is found guilty of sodomy on, uh, well, sort of. He, he's found guilty, his, his career is ruined, his life is ruined. And Gustavus Cornwall, while acquitted, um, because none of the witnesses, including George Taylor, could testify to, to him committing an act of sodomy with them, um, his life also was ruined. So this is an effective tactic. Oh, because the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1885 was what ultimately made the other things George Taylor was talking about, the mutual wanking and the kissing and stuff, illegal. So up until that new law in 1885, the law was specifically about sodomy, which had to be anal penetration. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, Which is why George Taylor said... I know the meaning of sodomy, and buddy boy, that was not it. So, meaning masturbation, wasn't it? Right. 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 Okay, yeah. yeah. So, let's take a moment to giggle. Okay, get your giggles in, because (laughs) anal penetration and waking are all funny words, right? (laughs) Yes, they are. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that opportunity. Um, Back to the story, though. Right. So, yes, Healy, with O'Brien's approval, started alluding to certain Dublin Castle administrators adventures of a questionable nature around town though never speaking frankly the insinuation and implication in the united ireland was enough to cause backlash from other editors and politicians alike other papers including the london times but also the irish which was a moderate nationalist paper the freeman's journal lambasted him for suggesting sexual impropriety The Times turned his reporting back on him, chalking it up to just another vulgar Irishman failing to meet, quote, that unwritten code of good breeding and good feeling, which all once obeyed, end quote. So clearly feeling attacked, Healy dug in. 
He asserted his right to reveal the follies and even private lives of public officials when, according to Healy, such public men's private character was such as to, quote, affect their public position. He invited the House of Commons to make rules to stop such questions, but that it will not do so until the life and adventures of what is called the private character of various Crown employees in Ireland, from Corey Conlon to Detective Director and County Inspector James Ellis French, are fully laid bare to the universe. So the gauntlet was thrown. Healy never printed anything explicit. He couldn't. There were censorship laws and social mores that prevented them from even using the word sodomy in print. But it was pretty clear to everyone what they were saying. And it's the kind of thing that if Cornwall and French didn't do something big about it, it would have been as good as admitting they had done it. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So in late 1883, French launched a libel suit against the paper to be uh, in the the paper was represented by the editor-in-chief, William O'Brien, even though Healy had done all this writing himself. George Bolton, that member of parliament that um, we mentioned a little bit earlier, he also launched his own libel suit against O'Brien, which he won. O'Brien had to pay 3,000 pounds in damages, even though the stories about Bolton living with his wife before they were married were quite true and everyone knew it. There were some pretty weird uh, rules around libel laws in Britain at the time because defamation of character was pretty serious business. So for the most part, anyone who launched a libel suit won it. And the degree of truthfulness to the libel might have mitigated the punishment meted out um, to the libeler. But otherwise, you know, if you were accused of libel, you were going to lose. You were going to lose. You were as a defendant, you were going to lose. But in the mid 19th century, the libel laws and practices relaxed a bit. By the time Cornwall and French entangled themselves in libel suits against the United Ireland, uh, a jury m- might potentially find in favor of the defendant if the libel was A, found to be true, and B, proved a danger to public safety or good. Bolton living in sin with his wife, by that estimation, was not deemed dangerous to the public good. It was true, but by British standards, it was not O'Brien's place to wave that around in public. So O'Brien was found guilty of spreading libel. Through the newspaper. Uh, no, actually, he said it in Parliament. Mm. It was rude. Um, when O'Brien heard about the suits coming from French and Cornwall, however, he had a pretty good feeling that the law might be on his side this time. O'Brien hired a private investigator. In the time it took the case to go to court, he had gathered 22 witnesses, most of whom had had sex with either French or Cornwall or both. He paraded out these witnesses one after the other, and they delivered such testimony that surely shocked and outraged and blew the courtroom away. We actually don't know the details uh, of the testimony uh, in the libel suit. It was so scurrilous that the grand jury ordered it not to be published after the case was closed. 
parts of the uh, proceedings appeared in places like the Freeman's Journal, which just regularly reported on court proceedings. Um, the April proceedings included the testimony of Malcolm Johnston. Later testimony from George Taylor established that Johnston would ultimately have sex with James Ellis French. Taylor testified during the sodomy trial over the summer and fall of 1884, as well as the libel trial. At the sodomy trial, he described a scene between French and Johnston that he walked in on. Quote, French asked Mr. Johnson, said, George, come in. Johnston was sitting on the bed when I went in and French was standing over him with his hand on his own person, which was exposed. Johnston's trousers were open. French said to me, what's wrong with this fellow? And said he, Johnston, could not get an erection. He was then speaking of Johnston. He wanted Mr. Johnston to let down his trousers, and before that, he tried to commit masturbation with Johnston. He was masturbating himself at the same time. He asked Johnston to take down his trousers and let him bugger him. Johnston refused, and we then went in and sat down to tea, and in about 10 minutes, something occurred. <laughs> End quote. I love something occurred. That's uh, ejaculation. Uh, also, when he touched his person, that's obviously his penis. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, the joys of my job. With such vivid testimony and with multiple witnesses to various sex acts between these men, the judge really had no choice but to indict Cornwall, French, Kerwin, and four others who quite clearly, from the testimonies, um, the who were quite clearly, from the testimonies, men who procured and paid for sex um, with the young men of Dublin. French's libel suit collapsed. The evidence was simply too damning, and the fact that there was significant evidence to convict him wholly of sodomy meant to the judge that the truth of the matter outweighed the modus operandi of libel cases. He represented a danger to the public good, and when Cornwall caught up in the tide of the United Ireland attack on French through the continued coverage of the libel case and the proclivities of the GPO officials and the Royal Irish Constabulary soldiers launched his own libel suit in July of 1884. He did so foolishly. The evidence mounted against him was equally damning, and he was arrested and put on trial for sodomy alongside French. The parade of witnesses was truly incredible, and fortunately for all of us, there is a copy of the sodomy trial testimonies in the National Archives of Ireland um, for the Cornwall case specifically. We don't have the French um, case that's in the, um, I never got access to it, it was in the London Archives apparently. We shall proceed to quote liberally from them here now. I promise, because here, I promise, are the salacious romance novel-esque, maybe, <laughs> details you've been waiting for. At the time of the trial, in 1884, seven of the witnesses testified against Gustavus Cornwall, specifically 25-year-old George Taylor, an employee of the Prince of Wales Hotel, 25-year-old Malcolm Johnston, also an employee of the Prince of Wales Hotel. Do you suspect that this, this whole hotel to be the kind of place that might cater to same-sex as Iron Man? Uh, me too. Um, William Clark, late 20s, 25-year-old John Strong, 21-year-old Michael McGrain, and 33-year-old Alfred McKiernan. 
George Taylor met Gustavus Cornwall when he was 21. His acquaintance brought him to the Botanical Gardens. So what's up with them all buggering in the Botanical Gardens? Well, I, I guess... Just the place to be? It's the place to be. Okay. All right. So when he brought him to the Botanical Gardens, one of Cornwall's favorite places to take potential boys for his flock, Cornwall used both the Botanical Gardens, a place where you could duck behind some plants to steal a kiss or even a little fondle, and the GPO as main meeting spots for dates to introduce men. So I love the idea of the post office being Yeah, the this. post office. Yeah. I mean... I mean, it's the place to be. It's a worldly place. <laughs> <laughs> that first day when they met, nothing much happened. Taylor met Malcolm Johnston, who arrived with Cornwall in a car, but Cornwall hinted that he hoped to meet with Taylor very soon. I'm assuming by car you mean buggy. No, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cars like, are like, like 1912. Dishing, like horses, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Carriage. Carriage. By car. Yeah. Carriage. Um, I remember, Taylor said, in the summer of 1883, going to a musical party. As you recall, musical mm. was likely code for homosexual, probably in this case, too. Although I'm sure there was actually music being played um, at such parties. So I met Cornwall at the party, and I left with him at 11 p.m. Cornwall offered to take Taylor home. They got a car, but Cornwall's house was closest. Come out for a brandy and soda, or some refreshment, Cornwall told him. Cornwall's wife was not home. They had a drink, Taylor said, with me on his knee. He kissed me, put his tongue into my mouth, and exposed his person and my own, and committed masturbation with me. He committed masturbation on me and I with him. He asked me, had I ever committed sodomy with anyone? I said, never. I think what he asked me was, had I ever been buggered? Oh, said he, it's like a knife going through you. When the prosecution asked Taylor if he got anything from Cornwall for these encounters, he replied, I repeatedly got tickets for the Royal Irish Academy concerts, and on one occasion, a ticket for the flower show from the defendant. Later, Taylor met up with James Ellis French, Malcolm Johnston, and another man at the RIC barracks. Mr. French lit the gas in the office and he locked the door. French exposed his own person and exposed Malcolm Johnson's person and held it and committed masturbation on himself. Mr. Johnson committed masturbation with me at the same time. He masturbated me. So, just a regular old police barracks orgy. Yep, you know. Mm -hmm. In the course of the interrogation, the prosecutor asked Taylor when he first, quote, prostituted himself to bestiality. Cheekily, Taylor retorted, I don't understand what you mean. I understand bestiality to mean connection with the lower animals. The prosecutor asked when he'd begun these beastly practices with men. These beastly practices with men, Taylor responded, perhaps gritting his teeth, or maybe even defiantly, commenced with me about seven years ago, and I have been at it ever since. I never get any presents for my acts, nothing but dinner or drinks. I did not consider that remuneration at all. It's not clear how much of these testimonies were actually read out loud in a packed courtroom. And for this high profile of a case, the room would have been packed. And of course, none of these salacious details made it into the papers. The censorship laws still reigned supreme. But the sentiment in the room was palpable. During the sentencing, the judge called French's crimes unspeakable. In the past, unspeakable was language reserved only for the most grisly of crimes. So murder, child murder, religious desecration. 
In July of 1884, it was a phrase applied for the first time, according to Margot Backus, to a male same-sex sex crime. It would thereafter be used with some frequency to refer to male same-sex sex in the papers, joining the litany of terms like unnatural acts, crimes not to be named by Christians, and crimes against nature. All euphemisms, because mm -hmm. you couldn't say what you meant. You had to say what you hope people would understand. Right. So clearly, the Justice O'Brien, who was not related to William O'Brien, who was standing for the paper in the libel case. But, you know, it's confusing. Everyone's named William. Everyone's named Michael and Patrick and O'Brien. So Justice O'Brien was truly horrified by the evidence brought forth in the Cornwall and French cases. Take the testimony of John Strong, which is a great poor name. Right. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, he recalled. It's, it's almost as good as Harry. What is Harry name? Cox. Harry Cox and John Strong. John Strong, Harry Cox. Yes. Um, what was the. Oh, Smoke. Dan Smoke. Dan, Daniel Smoke. Daniel Smoke. Um, so John Strong recalled an evening when he dined alone with French, after which they went to bed together. He caught me round the waist, Strong recalled, squeezing me very tightly to him. And then he inserted his penis between my legs in front. He twisted me around and tried to insert his penis into my person behind. He did not wholly or partially succeed. I told him I would scream out and alarm the house. Later on in the night, he said, let's get up Johnny and wash him. His penis. He asked me to take his penis in my mouth, and I said, certainly not. He kept me awake the greater of the night and messed me all over. He was continually spending his semen. Oh I breakfasted with him the next morning. So that probably felt like a bit of a mixed message to the jury. On the one hand, he said no to the sodomy, but on the other hand, he had breakfast with the guy the next day. <laughs> yeah, in a lot of these cases, the men who turned witness for the crown, like John Strong or George Taylor, were male prostitutes and had been in the game for most of their lives. So when they got picked up by the cops, they knew what stories to tell, how right. to frame the story, that they were victims, that they were, uh, that they had objected. They'd still be somewhat culpable, but it was also a sort of safety net to backtrack to if needed. Mm -hmm. Because being party to any sex with other men, whether as a passive or active partner, was a crime. Even rape victims were liable for being party to a crime of sodomy or after 1885, gross indecency. Oh. Yeah. In the end, the testimonies given against Gustavus Cornwall were insufficient to find him guilty of sodomy. In those days, you, need, you needed at least two eyewitnesses to anal penetration. As you might surmise, this was difficult to obtain. For the watching nation, the Irish, but also the British, this was a problem. Because while the extensive particulars of a case could not be reported in the papers, William O'Brien was not content to let this juicy scandal drift out of the limelight. He went so far as to describe the alleged nature of Cornwall's kisses, which was, to the other newspaper magnates of the era, a step too far. Even if he did not explicitly say sodomy, describing the exchange of something so intimate as a kiss between two men was just too much. And yet, Cornwall walked. He was effectively forced into retirement. He was planning, he was going to be retiring the next year, so it wasn't that big of a deal. But he spent no more time behind bars than when he was held before trial. For someone like Member of Parliament Henry Labouchier, that really unpleasant homophobe who Tim Healy rebuked in that quaint anecdote Margot Backus quoted, you know, about musical 
souls and whatever. Um, it was unacceptable that a man who so clearly was party to something that Victorian society deemed irreparably and undeniably wrong, that he should get away with it. So I think, and a few other scholars like Jonathan Coleman and Katie Hemmerich Watson, that the Cornwall acquittal was what prompted Henry Labouchere to casually text Section 11 on the Criminal Law Amendment Act just a few months after the conclusion of the Dublin Castle scandal. This bill was created to reform female prostitution, allegedly, to improve protections for women and girls, but actually, like, basically them um, in its, its rules. Um, so how, then, did a section on sex between men belong in a female prostitution reform bill? It didn't, not really, although John Coleman wrote this br brilliant dissertation a few years ago, and I was hoping his book would be out um, by now, but it's not yet, so go download his dissertation. We will link to it in the show notes. He puts some of the other same-sex sex scandals of the 19th and 20th century into such an interesting lens that uh, I, mean, I love it so much. Um, but basically, basically, he argues that with the 1885 Amendment, the Labouchere La Amendment we were talking about earlier, that male same-sex sex was explicitly tied to prostitution. That the way that Victorian Britons thought about homosexuality was within the context of prostitution. Uh, and and partly, partly that's because male prostitutes were as ubiquitous as female prostitutes in Victorian cities of the United Kingdom. Hmm. So obviously that means Ireland too, and undoubtedly most of the guys like Alfred McKiernan, George Taylor, and the others who gave testimonies in the Cornwall French case were male prostitutes. And that new law was in part a response to the failure of the old law to catch someone like Gustavus Cornwall, who was supporting and living in that world of illicit male prostitute sex. He was as bad as the men who lured young girls from their homes to work in brothels or be prostituted out, which was the crux of that criminal law amendment act of 1885. Fascinating stuff, like really worth a read. Yeah, so anyway, different story for James Ellis French. The evidence presented against French was more than enough to put him away. He lost his job. He was charged with seven distinct counts, including committing a felony, sodomy, with George Taylor, William Clark, and John Strong. His station in life and connections did save him somewhat, whereas no ordinary man would be able to get out from under evidence that compelling. The jury in French's case came up with a null psyche on the first and second counts, which were the counts of committing a felony, sodomy, and attempting to commit a felony. Again, sodomy. He was left with misdemeanor charges, and he was found guilty of one on Saturday, November 22nd of 1884. He was sentenced to two years of hard labor. The maximum sentence for a sodomy conviction would have been life imprisonment. The longer-lasting consequences of the Dublin Castle scandal were, for one, the La Boucher Amendment in 1885. After days of debating the particulars of that act, the larger issues of female prostitution and, and johns and, and um, pimps, in not those words, La Boucher just sort of introduced the amendment one morning. It was accepted without debate, and then the entire bill was passed into law the following day. Wow. Yeah. Another longer-lasting consequence of the Dublin Castle scandal was, in Irish politics, a win for the home rulers. 
William O'Brien had further entrenched his reputation as a bit of a savage, confirming all that the British thought of him anyway. But Dublin Castle also gained a pretty tainted reputation. Thereafter, the men who served in the colonial administration were basically guilty by homosexual association. Those jobs, once relatively cushy compared to, say, administrative roles in South Africa or India or wherever, were quite controversial. So Healy and O'Brien won the day. A dozen or so men's lives were effectively ruined, and all because they had sex with other men. But at least the poor beleaguered Irish home rule movement advanced a little. Mm. (laughs) On the other hand, people in glass houses, right? Because not a decade later, Charles Stuart Parnell had to face down his own sex scandal, and even he could not survive the ego of a morally righteous colonized nation. Adulterers! They are great. So this is, if you've never read my bio or met me in real life, my stuff. The stuff that I research and write on in my academic life. Um, One of the reasons we're doing this series, um, these next four episodes or these four episodes that you've listened to by now, is to give you a bigger glimpse uh, into the work that we do as professional historians. Sometimes this bleeds through in our episodes. Right. Like when Sarah talks about the Civil War and disability, that is her field. And her forthcoming book is from UGA Press. So when Marissa talks about early modern women and body commodification and specifically breastfeeding, that's coming from her dissertation. Or when I talk about women and progressive era reforms, that's coming from my dissertation. And when I talk about Ireland and sex, that's my field. That's what I write about. The Dublin Castle scandal is an important part of a journal article that I'm working on right now which is why I wanted to flesh this story out in sort of in full, as it were. So I hope you have enjoyed this little glimpse into Irish politics and sex. So I hope you've enjoyed the episode. Make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Mm -hmm. And if you enjoy our episodes, you can leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Yes. Um, And show notes and full transcript to this episode and... I don't know if you want to, like, listen to this again, but on YouTube. (laughs) That's all at digpodcast.org. Thanks for listening. Ciao. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner-Masaryk, Sarah Hanley-Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. With such vivid testimony... And with multiple... Wait, so they, he came after they sat down for tea? Yep. Okay. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. to make sure. Tea time. Uh, Ejaculate. Sludge. Yeah. <laughs> Kilmainham. Kilmainham. <laughs> the so-called... What? Kilmainham. The so-called... Which had to be penalty. Penal penetration. <laughs> but the sentiment in the room was that palpable... But the cinnamon in the room. <laughs> the maximum sentence for a sodomy convention would have been life imprisonment. Did you say convention or conviction? I don't know. Convention. The maximum sentence for a sodomy con Oh I did. Get your get your giggles out. Cox. Harry Cox. Um he's very good. I love his stuff. Harry Balls Cox. Harry G. Cox. Um
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.